0: I invite your attention today to Proverbs chapter 5, Proverbs chapter 5. And in this uh, passage, we're going to deal with the subject of the entangling power of sin. I will have to confess to you at the outset that this was not the message I'd planned until Friday. When I saw how occupied the country was, with the national moral issues uh, that confront us, I felt compelled that we, we should stop and deal with this issue to some in some way. This is not a political message. This is a message about God. It is a message of judgment. It is a warning to all of us. And I want us to look at the passage carefully, beginning in verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice with a wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, Let her breasts satisfy you at all times, and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman, and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. Sin, the Scripture declares in our text passage of verse 22, sin is like ropes gradually trapping and ensnaring us until we cannot break free. Sin is like ropes which entrap us, until we cannot break free. In this passage of verse 22, the word entrap or trapped comes from a very primal Hebrew word that means simply to catch in a net or a trap or a pit, which was the primary ways of catching animals in those days. The word that is translated um, caught in the second line is a word that is different. It's sustained, to obtain to keep fast, to follow close, to sustain with the idea of containing, holding in, limiting. And the word cords is uh, the word, the simple word for ropes, but a very special word for ropes. It means a measuring line. It means that uh, these are lines which would measure a field. And so there is a sense, he is saying, in which sin is like a marching fence that keeps moving in. The tighter the cords become on you until you are entrapped and contained in a small area, and you thought you were free practicing sin, but your sin becomes like ropes which bind you up or which limit your lot and keep limiting and coming in on you. Sometimes I fear that we preachers don't preach much on hell or sin. Have we gotten afraid of doing that? But we cannot avoid the issues. That's that's a full diet of the Word of God. And uh, the fullest diet is to preach on the whole counsel of God. And we must say some things. I heard about a man who said that he wanted to eat of the three basic food groups on a regular basis. And the three basic food groups to him were canned, frozen, and takeout. And uh, he said that he subsided on those three basic food groups. Well, we want a full, rich diet for you, and that includes dealing with the issue of sin. Now, listen to this very carefully. The Bible commands forgiveness on our part. Peter asked Jesus how often he should forgive his brother, and he said, 70 times seven. But the offer for forgiveness in Christian theology must be met with confession and repentance. Christ died for the whole world to bring reconciliation to the world, and he offers forgiveness to the world. But the forgiveness is not engaged until individually we come to a place of repentance and confession. And when we confess and repent, then forgiveness becomes a reality between God and us and between man. But even when forgiveness becomes a reality, the consequences of sin from the inexorable law of sowing and reaping are rarely lifted by God. If I were to get drunk and have an accident on I-40, and I were to hurt somebody or kill somebody and leave a scar on my face from the accident, I can be forgiven by the family. I can be forgiven by God, but the scar remains. The scar remains, and the victim is still dead. And throughout the Scripture, We're told that God has chosen most often not to suspend the law of consequences, sowing and reaping. If there's one thing parents need to teach children, we need to teach them that there are consequences for every single action. The purpose of this message is not to focus on the President of the United States, but rather on God. For the president, we are not the judge and the jury. This is the work of Congress, the houses of Congress, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. However, we can judge a tree by its what, class? By its fruits. So we are not judging the president, and I'm not the jury for the president. And this is not a time for political gloating nor is it a time for anyone to stand and say, I told you so. Rather, it is a serious moment in American history that requires our lamenting, our mourning, our own repentance and examination, and certainly a time of prayer. I believe for America it is a time of judgment, Old Testament prophets used the crises in the lives of kings as parables of righteousness and parables of learning to the people of Judah and to the people of Israel. And my intention today is to let this national crisis and this national trauma and this national tragedy become a parable to teach us it shall not be our job to condemn or instruct but ra- uh, to uh, to condemn but rather to let the holy spirit instruct us as to what is our part in this now because i feel so strongly about this we're going to take 5 minutes in this service in the middle of what would normally be a time of proclamation And I want this to be a time of heart-searching and prayer for our nation. I want you to pray for the president. I want you to pray for the first lady. I want you to pray for Chelsea. I want you to pray for uh, the Senate and the House. I'm going to ask that you get up from where you are, some of you, and come and kneel at this altar. Perhaps you're more comfortable kneeling in prayer. Some of you may want to kneel at the pew where you are. Others of you will want to stand and pray. Others will feel more comfortable remaining where you are. But I want to call this church to five minutes of honest prayer in a critical time in this nation. And when we have concluded, we will then return to the exposition of this passage and see what lessons God would have us learn from it. And I want this to be a time of repentance and lament, a time of mourning as we seek the face of God. I will tell you this. If God is looking for a witness, He is looking for a witnessing body, the bride of Christ, the true confessing church in America that will stand up for righteousness, holiness, and godliness, and at the same time stand up for the justice of God and the mercy of God because all of us have been recipients of His mercy and the justice of God has been met at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you come and prepare your heart to spend time in prayer? Father you chose this land you blessed this nation to be a place of praise for your glory and your name you blessed us beyond measure that we might have the resources to be a staging ground for the gospel around the world you have made us a land of renewal and revival and the word and holiness and godliness and righteousness And we have at various times in history fulfilled that purpose, and at various times in history we have disappointed you. But our hearts are broken for our land, for the evident disregard of basic morality, basic love. Today, I join this congregation in asking for renewal and revival i pray for president clinton that he will understand that you're a god of mercy and love but your mercy never suspends your justice and your justice never suspends your mercy and that mercy and justice are met at the cross where there is forgiveness and healing through the blood of christ and i pray that you will work in the life of his wife our first lady oh god do whatever you want in her life, and bless his daughter. Give wisdom to the House of Representatives. Give great counsel to the Senate. And whatever the future holds, Father, we believe with all of our hearts that the word of Daniel is true, that you're a sovereign God and you raise up and you bring down whomever you like, whenever you please, based upon their relationship with you. Lord, this morning, the issue for America, we recognize and affirm, is not what do people think, but what do you think, and what is best for this land. So would you bring a renewal? Would you bring a healing to this place? Would you restore us to a place of respect for godliness around the world and make us a light to the rest of the world again? And heal not just the president, but the people. Touch our educational institutions and our churches where there has been less than a trumpet call for holiness and godliness. And make of us here in this place what you want us to be. For in the end, we're responsible for us. And as your confessing people, we're, we have an influence upon the rest of the country. Let it be so for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our text gives us some insight to the problem of sin in verse 22. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords or the ropes of his sin. I would probably make three observations from that text passage that, first of all, sin produces a chain reaction Sin produces a rope reaction. It is unfortunate, but that's the nature of human nature, and that's the nature of sin. In the case of the president, it appears, as I listened to Gil Davis, the former attorney for Paula Jones, say, all we wanted was no money, just three sentences from the president that she was a good lady, that he was in the room, and that it was unfortunate that this happened, somewhat of an apology. And because that was refused, then another sin took place. And then a a suit, a, a deposition revealing something else, which finally caught him in a trap. Whatever happens is not mine or yours to say. Secondly, sin is subject to the law of sowing and reaping. There are always consequences for sowing, always consequences for sin, Sin is to the farmer what sowing seed is. Sin is to the Christian what sowing seed is to the farmer. And there's a reaping. Sooner or later, there will be a reaping. The third observation, generally, I would make, is that sin in high places showers its message in wider places. The level of the sin will be the level of distribution. That is true in this body. If there is sin at this level, it affects this much of a network. If there is sin at this level, it affects this much of the network. If there is sin at the leadership level, it affects much more. There are consequences, and the consequences are different. I invite your attention momentarily to Second Samuel chapter 12, for perhaps one of the best explanations of this is found in the life of David, King David, At a time when he should have been a strong, experienced leader, he fell. And let's look at that for a moment, because I want you to see it. Chapter 11, verse 1, when King should have been going to war, he was at home. And he was at home in leisure. In verse 2, he from the roof saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And he committed the sin of lust. And from that, he discovered that she was Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And in verse 4, he took her and lay with her. And in verse 5, she conceived a child and told David. And in verse 6, he called for Uriah the Hittite, her husband, and brought him back. But Uriah was such a man of integrity, he would not sleep in his own bed with his own wife while his men were there in the fields at war. And so he slept at the door, in verse 9, of the king's house. In verse 13, the king tried to get him drunk in order that he might go home and sleep with his wife and be a cover for the king's sin. In verse 15, when that did not work, he wrote a letter to the general saying, put Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and let him be struck down. In verse 17, he was killed. And in chapter 12, verse 1, Nathan, the prophet, came to David and told him a parable about the rich man who had many flocks and herds and took the poor man's only ewe lamb. And David got angry at the story. Who has done this? This man will surely die, verse 5, and restore fourfold for the lamb. And in verse 7, Nathan said, you are the man. And it is one of the most instructive passages on sin. Because in verse 9, he shows that one sin leads to another. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah, taken his wife to be your wife, killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. The sin of lust led to the sin of adultery, which led to the sin of murder, which led to the sin of concealment. The second thing that we learn about sin is in verse 10. Generations will suffer. Consequences go on. I wish it were that simple that we could just all wipe this from our memory and it would be forgotten. I love what James Baldwin said one time, children have never been good at listening to their elders, but they have been magnificent at imitating them. Let me say that one more time. Children have never been very good at listening to their elders, but they have been magnificent at imitating them. The third thing we learn about sin is in verse 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you. Sin is multiplied. Sin is multiplied. As a result, even though God allowed David in his repentance as expressed in Psalm 51 to remain as king, the consequences flowed endlessly. First, there is Incest in the family between Amnon and Tamar. There is rape. Then there is rebellion by Absalom against the king. Then the king is driven from his throne and laughed at by Shimei, and his own confidence had been so affected that when Shimei laughed at him and mocked him, David said, "Let him alone. Maybe he's got a point." The king's confidence, as the anointed leader of God's people, had been shaken. He could not lead as he once had led. And then finally, Absalom died with his being chased. His hair was caught in the bough of a tree. And the end result of David's sin is that his family is shattered. And this one of his favorite, most handsome sons is rebelled. The kingdom has been broken. David's leadership has been seriously undermined. And it, one of his favorite sons dies. And David is weeping. And I tell you, if you don't learn anything else out of that, I declare to you, stop sin now where you see it. The smallest sin can become one rope, can become two ropes, three ropes, four ropes, five ropes that bind you until you are captive to sin. And nothing but a divine intervention can break those ropes and free you The fourth thing we learn about sin is in verse 12. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel. Here's the fourth lesson we learn about sin. I don't care how secret you think sin is. I don't care how how much you think it has been covered and hidden. It will always out. I don't know why God has plagued me with the Holy Spirit and constant conviction. It's to keep my, my feet on the right path, I guess. I tell you, I know some people, I've counseled with some people who've gone four years owing money on their credit card. If I miss two days paying my credit card, they call me and write me four letters, it seems. Do you, uh, there are some people just can't get away with anything. Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> but, but it is true whether we believe it or not or whether we see it or not. There is a secret sin that we think is hidden, but it will always come out. Jesus said, there, if it doesn't come out in this life, there is a time coming when nothing shall be hidden, and everything, Jesus said, shall be made manifest. And so, I cite to you David, and the consequent response of the world was that David had to assert, reassert his authority with sudden attack after Absalom's death in order for people on the world front to see him as king again i want you to look with me at the five ropes that i believe ensnare us and come out of our current news teaching parable first in verse 15 there is uh, first there is the rope of arrogance don't worry about verse 15 for a moment the rope of arrogance if we are too proud to confess a need or confess the power of sin We're in trouble right then. What allows us to be bound by the cords of sin is our arrogance. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, said, I'm not so sure that we should talk about Christians not living up to their beliefs. The fact is, most of us live down to our beliefs. When a professing Christian doesn't live up to what you think he should believe, he is probably revealing to you what he really does believe. And therefore, the answer is not condemnation, but instruction. That's why in verse 23, the wicked man shall die for lack of instruction because he won't take teaching about God, about sin, about the power of sin, about the enslaving power of sin. And sometimes we need to see that the first rope that binds us is the rope of arrogance. What if in that first approach by Paula Jones, our president had said, you know, that's a ridiculous thing. You're a good woman. Instead of sending his attack dogs to say that a hundred dollar bill dragged through a trailer court will get you somebody every time and make her mad. So she sues him. So he has to give a deposition. So he has to make statements, which then later catch him. Isn't that fascinating? The power of sin is in this living parable, just as David was caught. Secondly, the second rope that binds us sometimes is the rope of confidence. We get to the place where we think we can sin with impunity. We're above getting caught. Or everybody loves us so much, they won't care if we get caught. That's what happens to us. I thought I was safe when I was 11 years old and had swiped some cigarettes and cigars. But my brother saw me, revealed it to my mother. I couldn't cover it up. I was in deep weeds. Confidence. I thought I was safe hiding down a 100-foot gully in a river behind some bushes where I had a cigar in this hand and a cigarette in this hand, but I got caught. Then there's a rope of consequences. Consequences, yes. I begged mother to give me the consequences. She put them off till dad came. They were much harder when he came. All consequences are either punitive or instructive. Now, hear that. All consequences are either punitive or instructive. It is no longer our business to punish anyone. Christ bore our punishment at the cross. He took my sins and he took all of Bill Clinton's sins, amen, at the cross. But it's at the cross you must go to have your sin paid for. You must meet there where mercy rejoices against judgment and the cross provides forgiveness. But even consequences, if they're not punitive, have to be instructive. God has evidently assumed that it is in the best interests of the sinner, the forgiven sinner, to be instructed by the consequences of his sin, which is why he does not always relieve us of the consequences of our sin. The fourth rope is the rope of concealment that once we've been tied by the rope of arrogance and confidence and consequences, we think we've gotten away with it, we are now tied by the rope of concealment. Oh, we've got it well hidden. And the greater your resources, the greater the power to conceal. And then finally, we are tied down and entrapped by the rope of judgment. Because I tell you the truth, God sees and God knows you cannot hide from God. You can hide from me, you can hide from, uh, from Larry Sauls, you can hide from Ken Clegg, you can hide from, from uh, Francis Smith, but you cannot hide your sin from God. How do I avoid falling into that trap where I'm enslaved by the cords of sin? There are five ways, and here they are. Verse 15. First of all, be contented in verse 15. I love the figure here. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Hey, why did God give you a a spouse? Drink from your own well and rejoice in what God has given you. That's why God condemns adultery. It's a la- why, are we la- why are we not contented with the one God gives us? Millions of men every year think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. I am telling you, folks, that grass has to be mowed also. Amen? And you might be better off with that grass on this side of the fence. She's a known, qual- yeah, she's not perfect, I know that. Yeah, she has halitosis in the morning. Everybody does. So do you. But listen, the Scripture declares we should drink water from our own cistern. That means I'm to take my satisfaction in life. God made man for each other, and He made sex for our intimacy and enjoyment. And we are to drink from our own cisterns and take water from our own wells and leave everybody else's well alone. Amen? And unless we take that standard and take that stand, this country cannot sustain a social fabric if everybody is drinking from everybody else's well. Do you understand what I'm saying? And you children who don't understand, talk to dad this afternoon. Secondly, we avoid falling into the trap of being captive of our own sins when. Not only we're contended, but we're restrained. We must be restrained. Look at verse 16. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Should the intimacy and the love and the honor and the joy that you have to give to your spouse, should that be showered in the streets? Should we walk down the streets and say, well, let me see. I think I'll take that one. and I want this one. I want that one. Folks, never in a hundred years is that the posture of a believer. I know there are times when things don't work out. I know there are critical times, and many of you have been through painful tragedy and painful hurt in divorce, and I would not overlook that for a moment, but generally speaking, Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own, not for your strangers with you. As I sat in bed last night talking to my wife for, I don't know, 15 or 30 minutes about all kinds of things, she said to me, I like it when we talk like this. And I thought, you know, something happens in pillow talk in a marriage, you can talk with each other about things that doesn't really happen anywhere else or anytime else. Is that true for you? It should be. But not only should we be contented or be restrained, but we should be satisfied, verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. Let your. Fount- I-, I like the translation, I, I-, I like the translation, where is it anyway, somewhere here from the New Living Bible, the translation that says, drink water from your own well, share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in public having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves and don't ever share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Amen. Don't you like that? looking on your wife as a fountain of blessing, just restoring, encouraging, feeding, filling your cup. Be contented, be restrained, be satisfied. You say, wait a minute, Pastor, I don't know the difference between contentment and satisfaction. Oh, yes, you do. Remember when you were a child and you got up, my dad always made us eat breakfast before we could open the presents at the tree. On Christmas Day and I've always done that everybody's got to go eat breakfast before you can open up any presents now when I ate Christmas breakfast uh, sugar cake and and uh, eggs and bacon a country ham usually country ham at our house when I was done I was contented but I wasn't satisfied do you understand the difference now <laughs> I was contented but I wasn't satisfied I wasn't satisfied until I'd gone to that tree and opened up that present to see what, what I'd gotten for Christmas. That's when satisfaction usually came. The fourth thing is we should be faithful. Look at verse 18, the second part. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. Keep that covenant as God enables you. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. Verse 19, as a loving deer and a graceful doe. Now, ladies, I did not write this text. If you don't like that, take that up with the Father when you get to heaven. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Let let her, your relationship feed you is what that means. Breasts are the source of complete nutrition for the child. And always be enraptured with her love. Is there still a little glow? Is there still a little rapture there? Huh? When you see him come into your presence, does it still sparkle your eye? Huh? When you see her, does it make your heart leap? Say, I don't know anything about that. Then you need to come down. We're going to have a healing service for you. Pray for you. (laughs) For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? Finally, if we want free from the cords of sin, be accountable. Look at verse 21. For the ways of men are before the eyes of the Lord. The ways of men are before the eyes of the Lord. God always sees. God always knows. God always watches. And He knows exactly what's in your life and not anything you can hide from Him today. That's a warning. As God ponders your paths so that your iniquities won't trap you, and catch you in the cords, the ropes of sin, so that in the greatness of your folly or your foolishness, you should be lost or lose your way. In the final analysis, it's not what I think. It's not what you think. It's not what America thinks. It's not what the poll says. The final analysis is what God thinks. Our God is a holy God and a just God. Yes, He's a God of mercy. He's also a God of justice. And if we're bound by the ropes of sin, I challenge you to come out from under that captivity and be free this morning. I have a double garage door. And I like to work out in the garage. Sometimes I leave that door up. And I left it up while I was walking and I came back and did some lightweights. And suddenly a little bird flew into the garage thinking it was the wild outdoor yonders. And the bird saw the window, the outside, but not the glass. And headed straight for the glass and wet ker and knocked her little self out. And she lay on the floor. And I thought, I'll just let the bird lie for a bit and see. And she was so stunned she didn't come to for a bit. And I thought, well, I will help her. And as I reached down my hand and picked up that little tiny bird in my hand, I held it and I began to realize the wings were fluttering just a bit and the beak was moving just a bit, and the head was shaking just a a bit, afraid of this giant Baptist monster which had picked her up. (laughs) Oh, that's a feeling of power. You've got that little bird in your hand. You could crush it and bring death. Or open your hand and give it life. And I held it for a moment till she began to shake her head more vigorously. And I walked out of the garage And which did I do? I opened my fingers in my hand. She couldn't believe she had been set free. She sat there in my hand trying to stand up, and then all of a sudden flew off into the wild blue, free as a bird, because of this Baptist monster who had released her (laughs) and given her freedom. You may think that God's rules and God's laws are enslaving and limiting. The truth is when you're captivated by the lordship of Jesus and a love for Jesus is when you have your greatest freedom. And you may think that you are free to sin, But sin has its own characteristic which enslaves and entraps and surrounds you until you're a slave and you hardly know it. And then you try to justify yourself to the rest of the world. I invite you to come to the cross where there is freedom from the guilt of sin and there is power to be free from sin. And if you'll just put yourself in the hands of God, in the hands of Christ, you'll find the greatest freedom of all to be what God has made you to be. And then you will be the greatest witness the choir sang about that you can possibly be. Amen and amen. Let us stand
1: in prayer.